Good, good morning, everyone, and good evening for those of you in um, Australia. Um, thank you for joining us today for our um, Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth webinar with Malcolm Turnbull. I'm Paul Rota, um, CEO of Conservative um, Friends of the Commonwealth, um, and joined today by Sunil Sharma, our COO, who will be moderating the meeting. And um, without, without further ado, I'll, I'll pass over to Sunil, who can um, kick things off. Thank you, Paul. Um, Thanks, I'd like to welcome everyone to today's webinar. This is a part of a series of webinars hosted by the Conservative Friends of Commonwealth with influential conservative thinkers across the Commonwealth. I want to point out that a recorded version of this webinar will be available shortly uh, at the end of this broadcast. We have with us today, Malcolm Turnbull, who is the former Prime Minister of Australia. Having led the country between 2015 and 18, Prior to his elevation to Prime Minister, he held key ministerial portfolios in communications, uh, the environment and water resources. Among his many achievements, he salvaged the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership after the US pulled out the agreement at the last minute by ensuring all other countries continue to support the initiative. And he also forged new trade agreements with Indonesia, Singapore and Peru. At a time of growing nationalist sentiment across the world, his leadership remained committed to inclusiveness and tolerance. Malcolm, we're delighted to have you with us today. Uh, I thought I'd kick things off with your reflection on your time as Prime Minister and your general dealings with the Commonwealth. Well, thank you, Sunil and Paul, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. And it's uh, welcome all the people that are listening on to this webinar. Um, well, you know, the, the Commonwealth uh, is really, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's family, isn't it? I mean, we have a very, we have very close ties with uh, Commonwealth countries and they, you know, that, that's a, really an enduring commitment. I think the sharing and maintaining those democratic values of the rule of, rule of law uh, and democracy, uh, liberal democracy, which of course the, the you know, the, the piece about democracy that all too often is overlooked uh, in this age of uh, populist authoritarianism is that what a liberal democracy does is at the same time as it empowers the majority, it constrains it. And that is the importance of the rule of law. But that is a, look, it's a, it's a great, uh, these are great values, great traditions, and uh, it's a, uh, you know whether whether we were meeting in in Malta or in uh, in London, I enjoyed my uh, attendance at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meetings, always with with all of the countries, both the large ones and and the you know much smaller countries. It's a very diverse group. Fantastic. Uh, let's start right from the beginning. Um, how did you get involved in politics, and was it always an ambition to become Prime Minister? Well, I was always interested in politics, and uh, I was—I, yeah, I just always had an interest in politics. Um, I don't know that I had a burning ambition to be prime minister all my life. I certainly thought about it at different times, and in a parliamentary system, I suppose anyone who's a member of the House of Representatives or the House of Commons, in your case, uh, has got the potential to be prime minister. You can't get the job unless you're in there. So. That's the first qualification. Uh, but I was always interested. I, in fact, I ran for Liberal Party pre-selection 
not long after I got back from Oxford in 1981 and uh, was narrowly defeated, actually for the constituency I, I've always lived in and which I later came to represent. And then, uh, of course, I went on and pursued a, a legal and business career over many years and then uh, ran for Parliament, ran for pre-selection, which I won in 2004 and was elected to Parliament that year when I was, you know, I was 50 when I was elected to Parliament. So I'd had a, a whole, you know, life in business uh, and, you know, and I might say very, very fortunately, uh, Lucy and I uh, had had our children young and they were both grown up by the time I went into Parliament. It's a, you know, politics is a very tough business on families in particular, particularly with young families. In fast forward in 2015, um, we saw, I think, 30 consecutive news polls that had put the, the Liberals far behind Labour. Was that the main tipping point uh, for you to resign from Cabinet and challenge uh, Tony Abbott? And go well, well actually, it wasn't. So, Neil, I mean, one of my many mistakes in politics, uh, I think, was referring to the news polls at all in, in my... Uh, a uh, little speech when I challenged Abbott. Um, no, the, you know, I felt the government was failing. It was dysfunctional. Um, I mean, I've described, gone into some detail about that in my book, A Bigger Picture, uh, which, you know, I'd encourage you all to, to read. Uh, but it's, um, it, no, it was, a, I thought the government, the Abbott government was failed, had failed uh, to deliver the leadership the country deserved. And so that's why I challenged him. I, I mentioned the 30 news polls um, almost as a, um, you know, a practical additional argument. And I should, have, I should have not done that because it was subsequently uh, used against me uh, very uh, frequently. As Prime Minister, um, what were some of your highlights, if you like, favourable moments? And looking back, is there much you would change about your tenure? Well, I, I, in terms of change, yes, I would, well, there's certainly, look, there's a, when you're Prime Minister, there are a lot of things that emerge out of left field. You know, there are some, some uh, problems that perhaps are the result of your own mistakes, uh, but many are, you know, rise out of left field. I mean, the, you know, the Section 44 citizenship crisis, you know, where suddenly we had you know, one, well, we had literally dozens of members of the House and the Senate were found to be ineligible to sit in the Parliament. And, you know, look, at one point we lost our majority in the House of Representatives over it. That, you know, that's the kind of uh, catastrophe that comes out of a clear blue sky. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's politics, that's life. I mean, you could say at a much larger and more deadly level, the COVID pandemic is another example of that for the current generation. Um, look, in terms of achievements, I think the, the there's a, again, there's a, you know, there it was, I was prime minister for just under three years, but I got an enormous amount done. So, you know, a lot of people are in politics for, for years and years and don't actually do a lot. Um, but I was, I'm an activist, I'm a reformer. Uh, we, you know, we legalised same-sex marriage. That's one of the big social reforms. Very hard to do from my side of politics, uh, but we managed to get that done. You mentioned keeping the Trans-Pacific Partnership alive. I mean, in an age of rising protectionism, uh, keeping that 
huge trade deal uh, alive uh, was an enormous, you know, real, I mean, that was absolutely against the odds as an achievement. Everyone thought the deal was dead once America pulled out, but I persuaded Shinzo Abe and others to stick with it, and we did. And, and you know what? That means that the United Kingdom uh, could join it, at certainly, and, and, and an American, a future American administration uh, could decide to rejoin it. So that was, a, that was critically important. Um, really, the whole uh, you know, defense uh, uh, re-equipment agenda, massive uh, investment in Australia's defense capabilities, you know, with, with, with construction in Australia, particularly of our new Navy, uh, all of that has been vitally important to Australian industry, an innovation agenda, really supercharged uh, investment in technology and innovation in Australia in a way that, in a way that, that, that has now got its own momentum. The government doesn't talk about innovation very much. It's not fashionable with the current, uh, you know, to talk about it at least, but it's certainly got huge amount of momentum. And I think, you know, while I had some disappointments on the energy side of things, the getting the biggest pumped hydro scheme in the Southern Hemisphere underway. I mean, it's being built now, but Snowy Hydro 2.0 uh, was a, you know, again, a big, a very big step forward. Because if you want to have, uh, a ren if you want to have clean energy, which we all do or should do, uh, you need to make renewables reliable. And the way to do that is obviously with storage and, you know, for, for large-scale storage, pumped hydro remains the best option. Um, but there are many other uh, you know, worthwhile achievements. But it's a—I'll I'll bore you all, all your socks off if I keep going through them. You can read about them in my book. <laughs> now it's it's interesting you, you've mentioned uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Agreement. It, it's something that's gained a lot of traction in the UK. Also, since even the EU, we, there seems to be a great focus on trade and potential trade. Um, at the time, it was the largest regional trade deal in history when it was signed on the 4th of February 2016. I, I know your tenure only started just before the signature, but what were your thoughts on the original agreement and how do you think it's gone overall? Well, I, I, we, well it was, I mean, we were strongly supportive of it. I mean, the Australian government was very supportive of it. Uh, we had some issues with the Americans over uh, pharmaceuticals and the, the time of, the, you know, the term of protection for biologics, their intellectual property rights. Uh, but we resisted, um, you know, we resisted that push from the Americans. I mean, Obama, as he acknowledged to me himself, was an unlikely champion for the pharma lobby, but he was obviously had to try to you know, be, get the support to get it through the Senate to, for it to be ratified in due course. But when you say the deal was signed, yes, it was signed, but it was never ratified by America and under Trump, they withdrew. So, you know, the, the TPP never came into force in its original incarnation. Uh, and what we did was uh, essentially continue with the existing agreement. There are a couple of elements of it that were um, in effect put into um, cold storage, but not very much. I mean, it was basically the, the same deal uh, with a few amendments uh, was 
agreed by the remaining 11 countries. And that was called the Co Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a bit of a mouthful. And we preferred to call it the TPP 11. But uh, hopefully it'll become a TPP 12 when the UK joins. Um, perfectly, led on to that. Is this, do you think it's an agreement the UK should consider joining? Um, well, and what well, do you see the future Sunil, of the agreement? Sunil, being, being uh, I don't know, I hope I don't offend anyone here, but uh, the UK has decided at a time of rising protectionism to step out of the largest free trade zone in the world. Uh, that, uh, whatever the wisdom of that decision that's been made, uh, you, you in the UK need to cut as many free trade deals and trade deals as you can. Now, <clears throat> you'll have a free trade deal with Australia without any difficulties. And we, uh, although I, I see there already have become some issues have arisen, this is the problem. I mean, you know, these trade deals are easier to talk about and uh, conceptualise than actually to get, to get done. But, you know, we're 25 million people, right? We're, we're, we're good friends uh, and uh, family, as it were, but we're no substitute for the European Union. So the good thing about the, the TPP-11 is that you've got uh, Japan, the world's third largest national economy in it. You've got Canada, Australia, Mexico, Chile, Peru, you know, Malaysia, um, Vietnam, you know, and it's and many other Singapore, many other countries, New Zealand. Uh, so it's it, it's a much bigger deal. I mean, you you just need to get as much, you, you get need to get as many trade deals done as you can. Bluntly, that's what that that's got to be your goal, I would think. Because because the the um, and I've got to tell you, in when it comes to trade, trade deals, and I've I've had um, experience with dealing on trade with countries large and small, everyone acts uh, ruthlessly in their own interest. So, you know, the, I know there's a lot of optimism in the UK about doing a trade deal with the United States. Uh, I, they will, they'll drive a hard bargain, believe me. That leads on uh, to US trade. So, you know, I've heard um, you said in your own experience, negotiating trade deals as prime minister um, mm. with Americans can be particularly hard, especially um, over medicines. How do you think Boris Johnson should work with the Americans and what sort of approach would you advise for him? Well, he's just got to, you know, he, he's got to, um, well, he's just got to do the best he can, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, that, that he will have to make concessions uh, he'll have to make concessions to the Americans in return to get concessions from them. You know, at the end of the day, uh, America is, what, 330 million people. What's the population of the UK nowadays? UK population is, I believe, just under 70 million. Okay, well, so the America's nearly five times as big as you, right? So, so it's... Uh, They've got plenty of um, they've got plenty of leverage, uh, and there will be for every business in the UK that wants greater access to the US, there'll be someone in the US who doesn't want them to have it, and all will want greater access to the UK. So it's a 
look, it, 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 it's, it's horse trading, <laughs> to be blunt about it. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's what you've got to be. That's what you're just, you're just going to have to do a good job. And all of the backslapping and, you know, uh, bonhomie that can go on for the television cameras, but ultimately it will be uh, hard-headed uh, people, you know, driving a commercial bargain that's going to make it happen. Another key area, I mean, you, you've been um, consistent and outspoken on the importance of tackling climate change. You, you made it one of your priorities um, mm. in a spell as Prime Minister. In 2007, you, you were selected to the Cabinet as a Minister for the Environment and Water. But before we talk about uh, Snowy Hydra, I want to learn more about where and how that passion and drive to tackle climate change came from. Well, just um, recognising the, you know, the existential challenge of it. I mean, you, you, if you care about uh, the planet, if you care about humanity and its future, and the, uh, fu you know, the future for your children and grandchildren, uh, you've got to care about, uh, you've got to care about addressing global warming. I mean, the, you know, I know there are still people. Uh, both in politics and the media that like to deny the reality of global warming, but anyone who uh, lived through last summer in Australia uh, wouldn't have any, well, you'd think any, there are, look, there are still people that deny it. It's become a kind of a religious issue for people, you know, in the populist right, but it's, uh, it's a very dangerous thing in, in our in both in Australia and the US, the way something that is literally just a question of physics uh, has been turned into an ideological or really religious issue. It, moving on to the US, I mean, you've hit out at Donald Trump in the past, accusing him as uh, the biggest climate change denier in the world. I've heard you say he uses politics of fear when it suits him and he is the leading climate denier. How do you That's work not really with- really out at him, Sunil. That's like, you know, that's like saying the Pope's a Catholic. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not, a very, not a very controversial statement, surely. I mean, how do you work with countries and leaders taking that stance when you're trying to tackle... Um, well, well, I mean, uh, you, you know, you, you, you deal when you say... They're, they're really... You've got to defend your own interests. You've got to stand up for your own country and your own values. Uh, you've got to be a skillful advocate, however. You know, the object is to get people to, um, you know, to agree with you if, uh, and uh, to agree with a course of action that is in your country's interest. And, you know, again, I've described in my book how on a couple of issues, uh, you know, I was able to persuade Trump to basically to change his mind. And, and, and go against, in, one, in, in trade anyway, against, certainly against the advice of many of his uh, advisors. And to his credit, he listened, you know, and I, my argument was that the course of action I was proposing was not just in our interest, but in his. So you just have to be a good advocate. You know, it's, when it's, you know whether you're standing up in the, you know, Supreme Court arguing a legal case or, you know, selling a secondhand car, you've got to be persuasive. You've got to be able to marshal your arguments and present them. It's a, that's, you know, politics, a lot of what politics is about is advocacy. Many of our viewers say they 
especially in the UK, they, they may not know much about the Snowy Hydra product in Australia. Um, it's received uh, praise, criticism from the media, but generally it's seen as a huge positive step from the government in, you know, in actually trying to put forward real change with the climate. I, I want you to give a, sort of a brief overview of what Snowy okay. Hydra is and what do you think of its future and potential? Well, well look, let me, let, let me get back to get a couple of um, important points. Uh, clear. So, the as we move to have more renewable energy, by which I mean principally wind and solar, solar being a much bigger part of the mix uh, in Australia, um, what you've got is a form of energy that, whatever its capital cost, is a zero marginal cost generator. So. You and I may have each built a solar farm and Paul there may have built a, a wind farm. And let's say they're both 100 megawatts capacity. Uh, and they, you know, yours might have cost X, Paul's 2X, mine's 3X. So, you know, I've spent way too much money. So my long-term cost of electricity, when you take into account capital costs, will be higher than yours. But in terms of marginal cost, we're all the same, zero. In other words, it doesn't cost us anything extra to generate an extra megawatt hour of power. And what that means is that there is in a renewables uh, landscape, you're going to have at different times of the day, a lot of energy, a lot more than you need, and times when you don't have any. I mean, the obvious thing is if you had, you know, the middle of the day in Australia, uh, often the output in some places like South Australia, the output from rooftop solar alone is enough to, you know, meet the demands of the whole state. But what happens when the sun goes down? What happens when the winds, you know, what happens if the sun goes down and there's no wind? So you've got to have something to back it up. Now you can do that with gas peaking plants, but a better opportunity is to be able to store that electricity. And the, the best way to do that uh, at, a huge, at a large scale is pumped hydro. And that is literally, and it's been around for well over a century. It's not a, you know, a great technological breakthrough, um, but essentially it just means pumping water uphill when energy is cheap, electricity is cheap, and then running it downhill uh, through you know, a turbine in the normal way to generate electricity when energy is more expensive. So Snowy 2.0 connects two huge dams, uh, Talbingo and Tantangra. Uh, they are a 700 metres difference in elevation, so there's a lot of drop. The energy you get, the electricity you make from hydro is a function of the volume of the water and the fall. So it's elevation and volume are the two parameters. So, you know, all other things being equal, the higher the, the difference in elevation, the better. Now, the only problem with those two dams is that they happen to be 20 kilometres apart, separated by a large mountain. So you have to do a lot of tunnelling to connect them. But what that will enable, uh, that you know, that is just going to be a huge battery. Now, you've got to build more of them. And there are plenty, you know, there's projects like this around the world. But it, it basically makes renewables reliable, and it's uh, it's 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 absolutely key. Now, the 
I'll just conclude on one other practical observation. To get to build a solar farm uh, does not take very long. I mean, if you've got planning permission, which is probably what's going to take you the longest time, and you can connect it to the grid and so forth, you could actually build your solar farm in less than 12 months. I mean, you need an Allen key and a post hole digger and a cement mixer, you know, basically to set it up. But to build a big a pumped hydro system, you know, with dams and tunnels and civil works is the work of years. So governments have got to think ahead and put in place the storage infrastructure in advance of the renewables. Otherwise, you get more and more renewables coming into the grid. It drives the old, you know, coal-fired power stations out of business, which is good. That's what you want. That's what you want to happen. But you don't want it to happen at the price of not having any electricity or not having any reliable electricity. So that's why I used to say the approach to climate and energy, which has to be an integrated one, has to be uh, guided by engineering and economics, not ideology and idiocy. It's interesting. Well, we're talking about the climate, and it's um, it leads on quite well um, to something that you've alluded to in your book. It's probably my favourite part of uh, a bigger picture. Um, was how you felt sort of the Liberal Party, and I've heard you say this as well. How the Liberal Party has almost become held hostage into the right wing in conjunction with News Corp and various TV and radio outlets. Yeah. How do you see that affecting the Liberal Party going forward? And do you think that played a key role in you ultimately losing the, pres um, the Prime Minister's role? Yeah, well it, well, it certainly did. I mean, it certainly did play a leading, a key role. I mean, that's, that was essentially a right wing insurgency that blew up my government. And, um, you know, the challenger, putative, putative challenger was Peter Dutton, who fortunately was not successful, but in the chaos that followed, um, the, uh, we managed to ensure that Scott Morrison succeeded me rather than Dutton. So, um, but it was, look, it was reckless, destructive, uh, but it underlines the, essentially the terrorist tactics of the right in the Liberal Party at the moment. Now, when I use that term terrorist, I know it's a loaded one, so I hasten to add, I'm not suggesting they use guns and bombs or anything like that. But the tactic of the terrorist is to say to the established order, unless you give me what I demand, I will keep blowing things up. You know, I'll blow the joint up. And that is basically what has happened to the Liberal Party. The right uh, and they're supported by their friends in the right-wing media, particularly Murdoch's media, basically are prepared to blow the joint up, you know, throw the toys out of the pram, overturn the table, whatever metaphor you want to use. But essentially it is, it is you know, it's a standover. And it is because, you see, the, the fundamental premise of a parliamentary party is that you say, all right, we've got, you know, a hundred, a couple of hundred, however many people in the room. Uh, we have a, you know, a good debate about issues and then we come to a consensus or a majority opinion and, you know, we, we all go along with it. But if you get a minority, uh, and it doesn't have to be a very big minority, who says, we don't care what you think, we will blow the joint up then you're essentially being taken hostage. And that's, that is what has happened 
to the Liberal Party in Australia. So it's basically being pushed further and further to the right. Uh, and I think, you know, leaving aside whether that's going to be electorally successful in the long term, it's very bad from a policy point of view. It's very bad from a national interest point of view because the, the small L liberalism that has always been part of the, the mix of the Australian Liberal Party, you know, as John Howard would always say, it's a mix between the conservative and the liberal traditions. That's those small L liberals are now very, very beleaguered. I mean, right wing rising and the increase in populism is something that I've written a lot about and it's evident that it's um, happening here in the UK, in America, and of course, Australia. You know, we're also seeing a huge surge in far left ideologies, both here and in the States and across the globe. How, how do you think we should battle against these surges? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, the, the, we've, got to stay, we, we've got to stand up for our values, you know, our, our liberal democratic values. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of the people who call themselves conservatives nowadays are not conservatives at all. Absolutely, I mean, you know, right-wing populism is not conservatism. You know, that, I mean, that's, let's, let's be frank about that. You know, people that, that conservatives support and defend established institutions, not least of which is the rule of law. So when you see these authoritarian leaders, whether they're in English-speaking countries or, you know, elsewhere, who are taking on the courts and trying to, you know, thwart the constitution and so forth, uh, and, you know, uh, terrify their or intimidate uh, their opponents uh, in the media, you know, that, that, that sort of bullying is, that's not conservatism. I mean, that's what conservatives like Winston Churchill fought a war against. Let's be blunt about it. So, you know, we've got, I mean, I was, we were talking early before this began about Anne Applebaum's recent book, The Twilight of Democracy, and really speaks to this issue. It's, it, it is a, it's a profound one. You know, we, th there is a lure of authoritarianism. And, you know, the more rancid and fraught uh, democracy appears, the more people will be attracted to authoritarianism. And, you know, so, so we've got to, you know, we've got to really, we've got to recognise that there is a menace. It's not, you know, the old Marxists and the Soviets, but it is the sort of the lure of the authoritarian populist, you know, big man, they normally are men. Uh, and that's, uh, and, you know, you're seeing, I mean, Orban is a good example in Hungary. Uh, look at the way he's taken advantage of the COVID crisis to, you know, accumulate more power for himself. These are real threats and conservatives should be alert to them. It's something again, you know, you've said in your past and um, in your book um, regarding the changes to the media, which we can you know, attribute a lot to the, the rise in the right wing. In one of your addresses, you said how we're now in a world where the mainstream media is less influential than ever before. People can essentially select their own news, no creation, no filter on both the publishing consumer side. I, I want to ask you, what does that, what do you think that means for the future of politics? Well, it presents a very big challenge, Sunil. Um, 
I mean, just if you if you just go back in a relatively short time, certainly in less than twenty years, we've gone from a world in which most media was curated, almost all media was curated, uh, and in the sense that you needed to get an editor or a producer or a director to you know agree to let you you know put your stuff out there for the public to read or view. Uh, we also, the media, the, ma the mass media aimed also to get a broad audience. So, and you know, and that was to maximize the eyeballs they had for their advertising revenues. Um, now, with a combination of changes to technology to make the production and distribution of news much cheaper, um, you've now got, uh, and, and with social media, of course, so much user-generated content, you're now in a position where people can be in a self-selected information bubble, not just an opinion bubble. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, choose to read a newspaper whose editorial page broadly agrees with your, you know, political opinions. But we're now in a situation where essentially you can um, uh, choose your own facts, which of course we're all brought up to believe you, you couldn't. You could choose your own opinion, but you couldn't choose your own facts. And this makes it very, this makes, it puts great stress on a democracy because it means that, that all too often people are not uh, considering issues with the same uh, common framework of facts. You know, that's the, that, and that's, that, that, that is a, if you don't have shared facts or shared, um, information, then people will be making, people literally be talking past each other. And increasingly, I think that is a, that is a big issue. So it's really, but, but, you know, of course, you've got, um, you know, and you see this with Trump in particular, I mean, he has no, he has no concern about inaccuracy, misrepresentation at all. It is literally, it's all showbiz. And the, the problem is if that's successful, uh, other politicians will emulate it or seek to. In uh, terms of social media, we're seeing a, a massive change over the last uh, five to 10 years. I, I actually mm -hmm. want to give you a quote that um, I'm a big fan of. I think it's something that you would resonate well with uh, from Bill Clinton a couple of years ago. Um, he said we are less racist, less sexist, less homophobic than we've ever been before. But I think our big problem today is we don't want to be around people who, who disagree with us. You know, we're seeing a huge change with people stuck in their own echo chambers where their thought process yeah. and beliefs are just reinforced uh, with people who share the same views and uh, rather than being challenged, which we are now seeing less tolerance. In, in the age of social media, how do you think that's going to change and how can it change? Well, I think one of the things we've got to think about is how do we uh, maintain an adequate level of mutual respect? You know, the, I mean, this, this seems to me, this, the, the big problem with much of the political discourse, both in the mainstream media and social media and the boundaries between the two are often very contentious, is the lack of respect. I mean, you know, things like cancel culture. I mean, you know, if you 
someone says something you disagree with, even if you disagree with it trenchantly, to say they should be cancelled, i.e., you know, uh, driven off the scene, is is insane. I mean, it is so abusive and so authoritarian. You know, I have a friend um, in uh, actually an, an English an English person in the U, in the US who said to me thoughtfully the other day, he was being reflective, and he said, you know, he said, the Americans are very proud of the First Amendment and constantly congratulate themselves on their freedom of speech and how they're prepared to defend, you know, uh, people's right to say even the most outrageous things. He said, but the fact is, he said, because of the viciousness and the anger and the violence in the language in public discourse in America today, he said, I have never felt less free to speak my mind than I do today in the United States. And that's, you know, that is a problem. Because if you, if you have a, a media environment, mainstream and social, which is so intemperate, so disrespectful, so angry, it will intimidate people. And it's all very well to say that, you know, they should, you could say, you know, harden up cupcake and, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But the, pro but that, but the problem is we actually want to have a democracy where everyone feels they're entitled to express an opinion. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it's people disagree with it, they should disagree with it in a respectful and temperate fashion. But... Um, you know, there it is. I mean, that's, I, I think that is a big part of it. I mean, I always say Australia is the most successful multicultural nation in the world. And I, uh, you know, I, I believe that. I can argue that case, I think, pretty persuasively. But the key to a successful multicultural society is respect. You know, that, that's, I mean, you, you know, we used to use a term in, you know, respect, you know, talking about minorities and so forth, of tolerance. You know, that tolerant is a patronising concept. The real issue is respect. You know, I respect you for what you are and your beliefs and your religion, your background, you know, ethnic, racial, cultural, whatever, just as you, you respect me. And we, and, you know, on that basis, we can go forward and work together. And that that culture of respect is something that we've got to really uh, make take care we don't lose. Because I be believe me, once, once it does, once you get a uh, country divided within itself and you get politicians seeking to exploit that, well, you know, they're in, that's, that's, you know, that, that, that's, that's a highway to hell, believe me. I mean, one of the issues, um facing in terms of respect tolerance is you know freedom of speech you know wh where does the onus sort of lie in terms of combating inaccurate fake news stories is it the individuals the publisher you know your facebook's twitters the government mm -hmm. i, I want to give the example of medicare in 2016 in the australian election very similar um, mm -hmm. to what the conservatives in the uk had with the nhs where essentially the labor had come out and said that they were planning to sell off medicare um, mm -hmm. And to a huge extent in here, we had the NHS, a large volume of people did actually believe it. Um, mm. How did you go about dealing with this uh, in 
your elections and what would you have okay. done maybe differently, if anything? Okay, well, that, that's a very good question. All right, so, so in, 20, in the 2016 election, the Labour Party ran a, a line to the effect that we were, we, the Liberal National Coalition, were going to sell Medicare. Now, that was absurd. You couldn't, even if you wanted to, you couldn't sell Medicare. You know, it's, a, it's an agency that, you know, shells out billions of dollars for people's, you know, uh, doc visits to the doctor and other things. So it, is, it, was, it was nonsense. Um, and it was regarded as an outrageous bit of dishonest hyperbole uh, in the media and in, if you like, uh, you know, informed, the informed part of the community. But Labor targeted it, targeted it uh, at uh, electorates and voters who were older, poorer, and therefore generally in less good health, um, and were, you know, less likely to be well informed, you know, lower levels of education or whatever. And so in an electorate like mine, it had absolutely no impact at all. But in um, electorates, you know, marginal seats in Tasmania, some of the seats in Queensland, it was very, very, very potent. Very potent indeed. And again, I talk about that in the book. Now, what was the mistake? Well, the, and part of it was hugely dishonest in the sense that Labor had a, a text message which went out to millions of people, as far as we're aware, which purported to come from Medicare. So on your phone, you got a message and it said Medicare, and then Medicare is saying to you, you know, Martin Turnbull and the Liberals are gonna sell, sell Medicare. Well, you know, if you're not, if, if you're uh, gullible uh, or anxious, or, and you know, you might be all of those things, um, you believe that, that's gonna really put you off voting for the Libs. So anyway, the standard um, advice, and this was what our pollster and strategic advisor, Mark Texter, who you know, has worked a lot in the UK and you, you guys know well, uh, Mark's view was that we should not, uh, you know, we should be very measured in the way we, re we rebut it. And obviously we did rebut it. But he said that you run the risk of giving it more salience. You give the lie more salience. And so there is, so the standard approach was to treat things like that almost with contempt. Now that is actually, that was true, but it is not true any longer. Uh, the, the, it, what we learned from that campaign was that no matter how outrageous the lie that is being told about you, you have to knock it on the head as soon as it appears. In fact, you have to treat, you have to be monitoring social media ruthlessly, attentively, and when something comes up, you've got to, you've got to again, it's like whack-a-mole, and you've, and you've got to be very, very, hit it very hard, and, and just because, you know, the talk shows on the ABC and the, you know, the leader writers in the newspapers are saying this is absolutely ludicrous, it's embarrassing why these people say these obviously false things, just because they're saying that doesn't mean that it isn't working somewhere else. So, so I think that that's, that, that's a very, that was a very important practical political lesson. 
how do you how do you deal with it? This is this is a real problem. A lot of people say we should have sort of truth in advertising rules for elections. And some countries do have it, but it's very hard, very, very hard to police in a timely way because there will be cases where there is a legitimate difference of opinion. You know, uh, you know, if you say that, you know, the prime minister is, you know, a Martian and, uh, you know, in league with the, you know, the grand lizard to create a one world conspiracy that, you know, that might be easy to deal with, but, you know, what if you express a view about the, you know, um, uh, viability of one party's, you know, financial plans, you know, there's a, it's just, it, it, it's always going to be very hard. Um, what we used to rely on, of course, was curated media. So that if a politician came up with some outrageous lie, there would be a newspaper editor that said, oh, look, we're not going to run that. Or if we do run it, we'll, you know, make you, we'll, we'll hang it around your neck and show what an what a idiot you are. With social media, it's very different. You go direct. Now, that then gets the question as to whether Facebook and Twitter should be curating content themselves. And that is a real, that is a real challenge for them. It's a challenge for them from a feasibility point of view. Uh, and, and it also, you know, raises, particularly in the States, free speech issues. So inevitably, what they've been doing is kind of dealing with it at the edges with the, the most outright, some of the most outrageous, you know, hate speech, speech that is designed to promote terrorism. Um, they're the sort of things that they're able to grapple with. But you're going to find uh, in, the, in the middle ground, where most political speech is contained, still huge scope for misrepresentation and dishonesty. And that is, um, that is, uh, that's, that is a challenge. And again, I think the political response has to be very speedy reaction. A sort of a, another major issue we're facing in the UK, and it's definitely transferable into Australia and the US in particular, is we're seeing a large fractions and divisions in big tent parties, you know, with people refusing to compromise. What, what do you think of the future for big tent parties? And do you see a change forthcoming? Well, I think it's a, I, I think a lot, the, the answer is, well, this is really a, an aspect of the point I was making earlier about the tactics of the right within the Liberal Party. Um, I, I, you've got to have a, pol a political system, an electoral system, that uh, makes it possible to have more parties. You know, the, um, the, uh, if you've got an electoral system and a, let's say, single-member constituencies, uh, they obviously uh, supports you know, big parties, big tent parties, because, you know, only one person can win. Uh, clearly, if you have first-past-the-post voting, like you did, again, that reinforces the importance of big tent parties. In Australia, we have preferential voting, which provides some, uh, you know, relevance and potency for smaller parties. And, of course, in our Senate, we have proportional representation. So you've got to, I think you've, you've got to be, you, the, the risk that we run at the moment, I think, is the big tent parties become uh, unworkable uh, because 
or cease to be a big tent. I mean, they, they're a big tent, but many people in the tent are just subject to a small ruling clique. Um, or, or, and you don't have a electoral system that supports, um, uh, you know, supports uh, smaller parties. I mean, I mean, what would Britain look like? What would the House of Commons look like if you had preferential voting and uh, people, as we do in Australia, works perfectly well, um, and you had, um, you know, so people could vote for the Lib Dems or the Greens or UKIP or whoever, and then assign a preference on to another, uh, you know, to one of the big tent parties. There's a, it would be, it, you know, be quite different. I mean, I think the, the difficulty with first past the post when you've got multiple parties, multiple candidates, is that someone can win an electorate with, you know, maybe 30% of the votes uh, or less, as you know. I mean, it's, uh, that's, you know, that, that um, so that's why I think, you know, our system in Australia is a preferable one. But I mean, you, you, you were offered that in uh, the UK in a referendum and, and chose to reject it. So it was, uh, it was bowled up by David Cameron. Um talking of UK Prime Ministers. We have a number of viewers from a small town which is where I live in, Maidenhead, uh, where our MP is Theresa May and everyone will know she was the previous Prime Minister. Now I understand you've known her for over 40 years and I was wondering how did that relationship actually begin? Well, I went to Oxford in 1978 as a Rhodes Scholar from Australia and I'd been a keen university debater in Australia so naturally I got involved with the union and spoke there uh, regularly, including in a debate uh, where um, uh, with Theresa Brazier, Theresa Brazier, uh, and with one Philip May in the chair as president. So, so we, um, we got to know each other at the union, both her and Phil, and uh, she was, um, we had a rather, a rather uh, sort of, touching reminder of all that. At the, the first time I saw Teresa again um, after, I mean, I'd, I'd met her, seen her between being at Oxford and being Prime Minister, but the first time we met as two PMs was at the G20 conference in Hangzhou in 2016. And uh, we had a big, big meeting, you know, bilateral meeting with lots of people down each side of the table. And uh, we exchanged our pleasantries and um, I inquired about Philip's health and Theresa inquired about Lucy's health. And then, uh, sorry about that, just turn that off. And then um, uh, Theresa said, you know, Philip has never forgotten, has never forgotten that advice you gave him all those years ago. And I thought, good heavens, what advice was that? What on earth did I say to him? I was, trying to recall some night in the bar at the Oxford Union. Anyway, I persuaded her that we should just uh, get on, onto the agenda. And so later, when we could just be, speak privately, I asked her, I said, what was, that, what was that advice I'd given Phil about? And she said, oh, it was very sweet. She said, you, um, you uh, urged him to uh, you know, hurry up and, uh, and propose to me. So that was... Um, that was a sort of rather romantic uh, recollection of uh, 
some advice, I'd, some very good advice I'd obviously given Philip all those years ago in Oxford. That's an interesting story. I know a lot of our viewers mm -hmm. and me that will, um, will have enjoyed. Um, have, we've got a great question from uh, Alexander. Um, how do, do you think the CCP, um, in terms of China, the, the, the COVID situation, how do you think they have handled that? And how do you think, leading further on, how Australia um, has generally handled COVID? And what would be your reaction um, in dealing with the CCP? Well, I mean, there's a, you know, look, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's got, we've obviously got to examine the history of this uh, virus, its origins, its management um, in China and, and everywhere. Um, I think that in terms of handling the virus, dealing with it, I think China has done a very good job. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, look, it, it, my, uh, you know, expectation is that a, a thorough inquiry will conclude that there was a lot of denial uh, cover up disbelief when it first arose and that if uh, action had been taken more swiftly in China and Wuhan, the virus would not have got, got away as much as it did. Uh, but, you know, in terms of managing it, uh, that having been said, China is, you know, you can just see that from the infection rates and the death rates there, which are lower than many other countries. Uh, but you know, it's a it is a it is a uh, authoritarian country. Uh, there's also a great you know sense of sort of social solidarity there, and and I think the you know the tough quarantine restrictions that they've imposed uh, have obviously had their effect. I mean, it's pretty clear uh, how you you know how to deal with this virus at least at this stage, and that is that you've got to um, stop people. Um, you know, being with each other, social distancing is the key. And I mean, you look, you, you know, you, you look at how New Zealand has handled it. I mean, they've had a really tough shutdown for six weeks and have basically eliminated the uh, virus from New Zealand. Now they've got to keep their borders closed. I mean, how long they can do that is another question. But ultimately, uh, until such time as you have a vaccine or a treatment, the only way you can deal with this is with one, some form of social distancing. I mean, some form of quarantining. Uh, I mean, look, it, and, and again, this is not, you know, this is not a radical insight, Sunil. I mean, you know, quarantine is, as we know, is a Venetian word for 40, which was the 40 days that ships, companies who, you know, who arrived in Venice with people, someone who was sick were, were essentially, you know, put onto an island uh, to, you know, to either recover or die uh, before they were let into the Venetian community. So that's, that, that is honestly the only measure. So that's what, that's what, uh, that, that, that's how it's being handled. Now, in terms of Australia, uh, I think Australia has done well. Uh, I think it's a great credit to the Australian people and to our governments, both federal and in particular the states, because it's been mostly a state response in terms of managing social distancing measures and that sort of thing. The Fed's role has been largely 
involved with, um, you know, providing, you know, financial resources uh, and a bit of coordination. Um, they've had an outbreak in Victoria, as you probably know, a sort of a second wave because of some lax uh, or some failures of, you know, um, security and quarantine security uh, with some between security guards and people who'd been quarantined in hotels. And so Victoria is now in a pretty uh, uh, absolute lockdown, uh, but hopefully um, they will, you know, that, that will work as it has done before and they will get back to the point where they have, if not entirely eliminated the virus, got it down to a manageable level. But it is a, it is a, a it's not an unprecedented catastrophe, but it certainly hasn't had a precedent for a very long time. And I fear that the, the manage, managing the economic problems that arise from it will be even more challenging than dealing with the immediate uh, health issues that we're confronted with. We've had a, another question from Thomas Moss. Now the United Kingdom has left the European Union and will soon have an independent trade policy, do you think this is an opportunity for the UK to strengthen the Commonwealth and open the possibility to a Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, UK style agreement in the future? Well, I, look, I, I, I mean, this Australia is utterly up to this. Um, you know, we are totally um, up for a free trade deal. Uh, I made that very clear to David Cameron the minute the decision was taken and then to Theresa. Uh, you know, there's a lot of progress is, has been taken, has been made. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are 25 million people. I mean, Canada is a larger country than Australia, but again, it's no, it's no substitute for the European Union. Um, the Canadians are, will, you know, probably have probably got, it would be more complicated doing a free trade deal with Canada than it would be with Australia. Uh, but, you know, you will find uh, if you, like if Australia, if, if, Australia were to say, okay, let's do a free trade deal and we want to have completely tariff-free access for our, um, you know, our sheep meat and beef and uh, everything, all, all our agricultural exports, your farmers will be up in arms. I've seen some of them up in arms in anticipation on television already. So it's not, you know, these free trade deals are not easy. You know, people will seek to drive a hard bargain. Uh, and it's it you know it it could be quite it could be quite challenging for you. I mean again that's why I I mean I, I, I you know I I do think it was a mistake to leave the European Union. I mean I'm not saying it was ne you know I, I back in the 80s I was you know um, used to sort of quite, uh, uh, ask the question aloud uh, why did Britain why had Britain chosen to join the European Union. Uh, at a, you know, for the sake of geographic proximity at a time when technology had made geography less relevant than ever before. But having been in there and been in there for over 40 years, uh, to pull out, particularly at this time, uh, does really expose you. So, you know, we wish you all the best. We hope that Brexit is a huge success. We really do. Uh, and, you know, you, I'm sure you'll, if you want it, if you can, if you can handle it, uh, a free trade deal with Australia is 
is going to be uh, open to you, but it's not a substitute for, you know, what half a billion people in Europe. Another question uh, from Harry in Maidenhead. Points graced immigration policy in Australia has been a great success to control and regulate the number of people coming into the country. With the UK being different in size and the nature of the economy and also the geographic uniqueness, is the Australia-style immigration policy workable in the UK? Well, certainly a points-based uh, migration policy is, definitely. I mean, you know, the, let's be quite clear. I mean, points-based means simply means that for permanent migrants to Australia, uh, they are about two-thirds skilled. Uh, that's to say they, they, have to have, they have to have a job or a skill that is wanted in Australia. You know, and so that's, and that I think makes perfect sense. Any country is entitled to do that. The other th the third, the remaining third are family reunion, which are overwhelmingly spouses. So that's Australians that, you know, have gone to the UK and, you know, Australian woman's married an Englishman and, you know, and they want to come back and live in Australia. And obviously that's going to happen. So. Uh, I think a skills-based skills migration, permanent migration, is absolutely right. I think that the challenge that, that you know, you, you are facing at the moment, and I've been following it in your press, is dealing with um, people smugglers. Uh, you know, we've had a very tough policy on that for a long time. Uh, but, you know, ultimately you're going to find, I regret to say, that uh, the only way to put the people smugglers out of business is to deprive them of the product they're seeking to sell. You've got to get to the point, one way or another, that people understand that if they get into a boat uh, to try to get to the UK, uh, you know, un unauthorizedly, they will not succeed. Now, you know, how you manage that, given your proximity to Europe and everything is is very challenging, as it is for the you know, for the uh, Italians and the European Union more generally with the proximity to North Africa. You know, we, we um, you know, Australia is a, is a, you know, a big island with a lot of water around it. So it's, uh, that, that does give us some advantages. We have another question from Will Swanson. Um, given the treatment you received from the Burdock media in the weeks and months leading up to the August 2018 leadership spill, how can this apparent undermining of our democracy be prevented in the future? Do we need a Royal Commission into the influence of Murdoch? And I know that leads into some of the stuff we've been talking about earlier on um, yeah. today. And I, I want to, again, talk about the bigger picture in terms of, you mentioned about the transformation in, in the media um, really well in the book. And you, you said how one of the biggest threats is good journalism and how a lot of people now look at journalism, journalism as propaganda. So it, sort of as a general view, how do we begin to hold the media accountable and how do we essentially look to solve this? Well, look, I, I think I, I think I, I, I'm not convinced the Royal Commission would be uh, effective. You know, the, I mean, at the end of the day, in our society, uh, a media proprietor is entitled to be biased, isn't? I mean, people uh, are entitled to have, you know, to use the media for political purposes, and they do, but it's important, obviously, 
to call them out and see uh, what you know, see you know, identify that their motives and their motives and their conduct for what it is. I think there is a there, there is a, a perhaps a deeper uh, question that goes to whether a media organisation that operates like a political party should be treated like a political party in terms of public disclosures. I mean, that's an issue that's been raised. Um, but it's, it, you know, probably the, the, the best answer, I think, is for uh, the public to be aware uh, the, of the, you know, the fact that so much of the media is now becoming, in effect, propaganda. Uh, and for um, us to be absolutely uh, defend those media outlets that are still playing, you know, playing a straight bat uh, and, and ensure that they are. And of course, you know, in Australia and the UK, the two big media organisations that should play with a straight bat are the ABC and the BBC. Um, and, you know, those the people that that are responsible for those big public broadcasters have got a very heavy responsibility to make sure they remain accurate and objective. Uh, and it's tough because if the rest of the media is dominated by opinionating, then, you know, it is, it's harder to be sticking to, you know, accurate news reporting and, and, um, uh, you know, and, uh, objective commentary you know it's it's got to it's it's it is um or you know impartial commentary i should say so it's 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 a big challenge i mean it's hard i think it's harder to run the bbc and the abc today than it ever has been for that reason another question from joseph hammond during your tenure the quad strategic dialogue was re-established between australia japan the united states and india it's my understanding that the previous Ken Rudd administration withdrew Australia from the Quad in 2007-2008. Why did you think it was important for Australia to reverse Ken Rudd's choice and help re-establish the Quad in 2017? Um, well, I think, look, I think it's, it's self-evident that uh, the big democracies in our region should work closely together. You know, I mean, it's not a question of ganging up on China, even if that were possible, or trying to, you know, contain China. But, you know, Australia and India and Japan uh, and the United States are four very different countries with, you know, uh, many differences, too many to enumerate. But the one thing they've got in common is that they are democracies. And that is, uh, and so they, with those values, with those shared values, it is worth supporting each other. And I think that, so, you know, I, I thought Rudd made a big mistake. Uh, he did so because he was trying to, you know, avoid offending uh, Beijing, but he was essentially intimidated uh, and backed away from that. And it's taken a while to get that, you know, relationship reinstated and there's still a way to go. But uh, I think it is in, it's important for countries which have the same democratic values to work closely together. Well, that concludes our webinar with Mr. Turnbull. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone that's tuned in. Um, a huge thank you to Malcolm Turnbull. And if you haven't already, I thoroughly recommend reading The Bigger Picture.
Um, we've really enjoyed your company and you know, we wish you all the best for the future, Malcolm. Thank you very much, Sunil and Paul, and thank you to all of your uh, members that have uh, attended this webinar. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. thanks so much. Bye.